Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with RFF Senior Fellow Jim Boyd about forests in the United States. Private sector investments and recent federal legislation are injecting tens of billions of dollars into wildfire management, expansion of forest product markets, and forest conservation and expansion. Jim will help us understand how all of that new investment is likely to affect wildfire risk, carbon sequestration, local communities, and much more. Stay with us. Jim Boyd, my colleague from Resources for the Future, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you, Daniel. So, Jim, it's kind of wild that we've had the show on the air for almost four years and you are just appearing for the first time. It's kind of on us that we've taken such a long time to get you in here. But um, but it's great to have you now. And we'd love to start off by asking you the same question we ask all of our guests, which is just like, how did you become interested working on environmental issues, whether that interest generated at a young age or later in your life? Yeah, it started at a very young age. My parents were very outdoorsy and um, we did a lot of roughing it. We canoed, we hiked, we cross-country skied, we snowshoed. We would camp for a month at a time up in the upper peninsula of Michigan in the summer. And uh, I remember, you know, the stars and the quiet and the mosquitoes. And uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, so I grew up... Uh, being really involved in that kind of those that was our vacation is is getting out into the woods or onto a river and then my brother and I got really into backpacking in high school and um, just had some great hikes in the Midwest uh, I joined the Sierra Club I subscribed to Backpacker magazine I was really into gear and then uh, somehow I wound up getting a PhD in economics in a business school. But I connected um, my love for the environment to that, and the rest is history, if you will. So, but yeah, thanks for making me think of those memories. Yeah, that's, well, it sounds kind of wonderful. Because you grew up in Michigan, right? I grew up in Chicago, actually. Oh, um, okay. But we would go straight north nine hours from Chicago up to the UP, and um, that's where we would hang out. Yeah. Yeah, I was up in the UP this summer. It's just spectacular up there yeah well um i'm sure we could reminisce about our <laughs> recent and uh, distant vacations uh, for much longer but um we brought you in jim today to talk about um the forest economy and in particular how recent legislation has affected um the sector uh and what it means for you know wildfire and carbon and, and jobs and and all that stuff but um before we get into the details um, I think it would be helpful for our audience for you to just kind of define this term, forest economy, which we're going to be using a lot in today's episode. So, yeah, what does forest economy mean to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, the forest economy is huge and it's really varied um, in part because we here in the U.S. are blessed with so much forested land. A full third of the country is forested. Um you can sort of start out narrowly talking about the forest economy as being about timber harvesting and forest products, you know, think pulp and paper, think construction materials, increasingly think bioenergy. Um, 
But forest products are also really important to indigenous communities, uh, subsistence agriculture. A lot of people, myself included, uh, enjoy mushrooming. (laughs) So that's kind of the conventional answer. Uh, But then, of course, there's the whole recreation sector that's centered around um, recreation, which happens a lot in our forests. So all of the businesses and jobs and travel that support that kind of activity. And then there's a really large number of forest owners who are called family forest owners who really are managing their own property at a smaller scale. And they do that for a whole set of personal reasons that are really varied. Um, In a lot of ways, you can think about the forest economy in the U.S. as being equivalent to the rural economy. But I'll I'll expand the definition even further uh, because forests play such a big role in supporting ecosystem services like biodiversity and water availability and quality. They help avoid erosion. They help protect against flooding and they're culturally valuable. So the forest economy touches almost all Americans and all geographies. And um, they have a potentially really large role in our future climate solutions as well. Yeah, that's a great way to start us off. And we're going to, I think, touch on all of those elements in our conversation. But as I mentioned, I think it would be, you know, really nice to get us started here by uh, asking you to give us a sense of how recent legislation uh, is affecting the economy. So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, what are some of the most significant investments that those laws make and kind of where are they targeting those resources? Like which part of the forest economy are they likely to affect? Sure. Um, yeah, before I give some specifics, uh, just to say that those two acts are going to be hugely consequential for U.S. forests, both public forest and private forest, and the forest economy connected to them. Um, they're kind of three main drivers behind what we see in the forest provisions of the two acts. The first is kind of a traditional desire to conserve and protect forests in ecological terms, support the multiple objectives we have for forests, again, recreation, forest products production, species protection. But then in this last cycle, we've seen two a little more distinctive and timely drivers. The first is a lot of attention paid to the wildfire crisis, so managing our forests to reduce wildfire risks. And then the second is a search for nature-based climate solutions. So having forests uh, remove and store more carbon um, to help us meet our our climate goals. And the acts really up our game in in those last two categories. Um, In terms of wildfire, together, the two pieces of legislation provide more than seven and a half billion dollars in new money to reduce wildfire risks and restore forests so they're ecologically resilient. And wildfire has really been top of mind for Congress. Uh, It's about time, many would say. Um, You know, lives are being lost. Incredible amounts of property are being lost and damaged. A hundred million homes live in what's called the wildland urban interface, uh, where 
people are really in homes are really exposed to these kinds of uh, damaging fire events. So this 7.5 billion is starting to work on that backlog of underinvestment uh, in recent decades. And so that's a big piece of what's happened. In terms of the nature-based climate solutions, again, the idea here is that, that trees and vegetation generally are really good at removing and storing carbon. Um, the U.S. land carbon sink, which again, think of as soil and vegetation, it already stores 50 years worth of our annual emissions, and it removes about 12% of our annual emissions every year. And so the question is, and what Congress is hoping for, is that we could ramp that sink up, uh, get more out of it. And um, so there's there's a lot in the legislation about that. Uh, it's hard to summarize. Let me just give you a couple further uh, things of note. Um, there are additional billions of dollars available um, through what are called cost share programs, where private forest owners and farmers as well um, can be supported to take uh, climate smart action on their land. Uh, again, these are actions that um, help store more carbon in forests or agriculture. Um, and it's not all of those, it's almost $20 billion will go to climate related activity, but, but a fair chunk of it will. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, it has $450 million to support uh, carbon incentives for private landowners. Um, this is, you can interpret as helping, again, private landowners participate in carbon offset markets. Um, and there's some money, hundreds of millions of dollars, to help smaller um, and uh, more disadvantaged, underserved landowners participate in those markets. So so that that's really notable. Um, Again, I'm just kind of touching on what's in the acts. There's also a lot of money for workforce training, technical assistance, research and development, all of which, again, is focused on this wildfire and climate set of issues. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, so we're talking about, you know, billions, if not tens of billions of dollars when you add it all up. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. So lots of money flowing in from the public sector. Um, but as you know really well, Jim, there's also lots of private sector investment uh, that is increasingly flowing towards forest projects, partly because of this desire to increase the, the carbon sink uh, and, and perhaps provide you know offsets for corporate activities. So can you talk a little bit about how those private sector investments are shaping the broader forest economy? Yeah, one thing to note is there's a real linkage between these private investments, as you've framed them, and public incentives, policy incentives. So I want to make that point. Um, for example, the cost share provisions of the acts, you know, that's, again, where costs are shared uh, between the public and private sector. There are policy incentives to retrofit uh, wood product facilities, um, for example. Uh, so it's kind of a hand in hand thing. Just wanted to make that point. So, so what we're seeing, yeah, it's this real, it's this kind of historic injection of funds into the forest landscape. And in aggregate, 
it's really going to be good for the forest economy in terms of jobs, property values, business conditions. Um, and then again, this private forest owner participation in voluntary carbon markets could create, you know, even greater kind of movement in this direction. I kind of think about this investment opportunity and economic opportunity for the sector in the following categories. First, are these kind of cost share payments, government payments to the private sector geared toward changing behavior and, and geared toward changing forest practices um, that are good for our climate goals and our wildfire goals? Then there is support for forest product production. So here, think about using wood that we and wood products that we remove from the forest to produce bioenergy, to produce innovative construction materials. There's this thing called mass timber, where we can now be thinking about building skyscrapers out of wood. Um, and so there's this kind of stimulus for uh, the product sector in these acts, um, low interest loans, loan guarantees, things like that. A third category is a lot of the investment, particularly in the Infrastructure Act, goes to management of our public forest lands. Even so, though, there are going to be all of these spillovers to the private sector and adjacent communities. In terms of uh, jobs, uh, a lot of that work on federal land is going to create jobs and involve private sector contracts. Um, and then you've got, you know, the ambition is to, for example, reduce wildfire risks and enhance recreational resources. And so for neighboring communities, they're going to benefit from that. And, and you could start seeing how um, that's going to be good for property values. It's going to be good for tax revenues, things like that. And then finally, this thing I keep mentioning, which is the private voluntary markets for forest carbon offsets. Those are going to increasingly become important because the demand for these offsets globally from companies and governments who've made net zero pledges, they have to find those offsets somewhere. And one of the best places to find them is on the land with these nature-based solutions. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing that we don't have time to get into today, but I'm sure some listeners are thinking about is, you know, the complex accounting of forest carbon offsets and whether all of those you know investments are are really additional and are really taking carbon uh, out of the atmosphere is there anything you want to say just like quickly on that i know we could talk about it for hours and hours but is there anything briefly you would say it's absolutely a huge issue um you know nature-based solutions you, know, you can talk about forests as the prime example of that yeah it's complicated uh the dynamics of how carbon gets stored and eventually released when those trees die or decompose. Um, figuring out what forest owners would have done without the incentive to create the, the appropriate baseline. These are huge issues. They're complicated. Lots of people have been thinking about them for decades. So I want to just, I think, agree with you that this is a, a complicated issue. Lots more work to be done. But the upside... You know, we have a billion and a half acres in the U.S. of land that could be in play here. And uh, and so we have to figure this out. Um, so that's all I'd say. Yes, uh, 
that's a conversation for another podcast. Right, for sure. And we should do an episode on uh, on offsets in, uh, in nature. And I'm sure we could find uh, some great folks at or around RFF. And we're going to come back to this topic of uh, carbon storage and emissions in, in a few minutes. But first, I'd love to ask you about, you know, the first uh, issue that you mentioned, which is wildfire risk. Um, what's your sense about how these investments are likely to affect wildfire risk in the U.S. in the years or decades ahead? Yeah, so I want to frame it as um, these investments are catch-up investments because we have this history of suppressing wildfires and underinvesting in what are called forest treatment. Forest treatment is either controlled burns or what's called mechanical thinning. Both of those strategies are designed to take fuel out of the forest so that you don't get huge uncontrollable fires and you can manage them better. We have this backlog of, of handling that appropriately. So this is really just a beginning. I do think I can confidently say that um, this money is going to help. But it's, it's, again, it's a down payment and not enough probably in the long run to really get ahead of the problem. Interesting. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, um, I, you know, maybe help our listeners understand the historical policies that have led to the need for all of this management and forest treatment. Yeah. So the pivot that's happening is, and I'm overstating this, but basically from, okay, a fire has started, now let's let's suppress it and try to put it out. Um, again, action you take once the fires are already burning. The pivot that's happening is to a more proactive, protective set of investments and strategies where you're really trying to um, you know, make investments in reducing these risks at the front end. Um, and that's that's historically notable. And um, a lot of both communities and uh, people who care about the social impacts of fire and the natural resource experts have been calling this for quite some time. Um, and so you've seen those two kind of groups come together and agree on this. Yeah, because this is not just a natural resource management issue. It is also a deeply social issue. It's about where people live, how they build, how they plan their communities. So it's really a behavioral question. And by the way, something that uh, my colleagues and I work on at RFF. That's really interesting. So um, I want to ask you now about the economic implications of these investments. You've already touched on them uh, kind of in, in broad terms, but can you say a little bit more about how you expect these investments from the public and private sectors uh, to affect communities that are today heavily dependent on the forest economy or may become more dependent on the forest economy in the future? Yeah. So um, again, there's this kind of almost historic new set of investments and proposed action and attention to the forest sector right now. And so, and all of that, just following the money, that money certainly will percolate through the broader forest economy. Um, in aggregate, one thing I would like to raise as an important question, though, is will all communities benefit equally? Um, this is something important to keep an eye on. 
because not necessarily everyone will benefit from these new approaches, the new money. Um, in particular, the acts pay some attention to what we could call underserved communities. Um, there are a couple of specific places where support for small forest owners, underserved forest owners um, are called out in the acts. But uh, I, have, I have a couple of concerns. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, first of all, when we're talking about participation in national or global carbon markets, to participate in something like that being, you know, selling credits to um, a global corporate customer, let's say, um, there's a lot of what could be loosely called paperwork involved with that. A lot of administrative burden. You have to figure out how to sign up. You have to get your plans in place. You have to monitor and verify. Um, and I see that as playing more to the strengths of large forest owners um, and even institutional forest owners who have perhaps their own accountants, lawyers, land managers, and they're going to find it much easier to access these markets and participate in them. So one thing I would want to keep an eye on is, again, what's going to happen to the, the smaller forest owner. Um, another thing I'd pay attention to is what we could call forest community gentrification. And what I mean by that is, you know, gentrification occurs when in one way, economic conditions are improving for some people. Property values are going up, tax revenues are going up, local infrastructure might be improving. Um, and with this injection of money and opportunity into the forest sector, um, we might see something like forest community gentrification. Um, but it also means, of course, that some people in the community are losing out poorer residents, people who rent rather than own their their homes, they can be pressured by rising rents, rising tax burdens, and even by a change in these communities' demographics, uh, people moving in for second home use, for example. So um, I did want to note those things. One thing at RFF we care a lot about is, even though I've argued that this is a rising tide that on average is going to lift all these boats. We want to pay attention to the equity of that overall change. And again, this is something that we work on here at RFF and care a lot about. Right. I was just actually speaking this morning with someone from Idaho, uh, and they were talking about um, you know, second homeowners, people coming in from other places uh, who had more money and kind of leading to some of this, uh, this gentrification concern that you were talking about. So one last question, Jim, uh, that I want to ask you before we go to our top of the stack segment, and I, I referenced it earlier in our, in our conversation, uh, but just asking you to say a little bit more about what you think the implications of all this new investment might be on carbon storage uh, on one side of the equation and uh, carbon emissions on the other side of the equation. Emissions presumably, uh, I'm guessing, primarily from wildfire, uh, but maybe there are other sources we should think about. So um so yeah, where do you see these investments affecting both the, the sink and the source? Yeah, in terms of the sink, I am very confident in saying it's good for an expansion of the sink. Um, 
again, there, there's, there's money being really directed at this. There is attention being paid to how the private sector can engage in these offset markets. So in directional terms, I'm very comfortable saying this is going to help expand the sink. How much is it going to help expand the sink? Well, that is a much uh, trickier question to answer. Again, it's something we are trying to analyze here at RFF. It's complicated. Again, you've mentioned the kind of baseline and the additionality issues, the leakage issues we have to sort through to figure that out. Um, so I think the jury's still out on that. Um, and of course, when you change land use in order to store more carbon, you're changing land use. And that can be um, socially, politically, and economically um, disruptive to uh, the kind of way we are doing things right now. So I see this playing out in a in a in an interesting way. Um, I'm not here today to be able to say, "Oh yes, this is going to help us," uh, you know, absolutely achieve net zero in the U.S. by the year 2030 or something like that. Um, but it's good news. Mm-hmm. That's great. And yeah, how about on the source side? Yeah, the main thing, the money, basically wildfire is actually a huge source of emissions. Now we're never going to get, nor would we want to, get rid of forest fire. Forest fire is a natural and important and valuable ecological process. Having said that, uh, the amount of forest carbon emitted, greenhouse gases emitted from wildfire in California um, recently it's more than all the emissions associated with their uh, electricity production. So it's, it's a big number. It's, it's really material. And so to the extent that we can be um, managing and controlling fires, particularly huge ones, um, that's going to be good on the emissions side as well. And it goes to a life cycle issue that's that's kind of important here, which is, again, when we, we remove these fuels from the forest, we can be using them in products that in the in the greenhouse gas life cycle um, offset other sources, petroleum products as an energy source, for example, or we can store them in long lived construction and, and change the life cycle that way. So, again, it's definitely good news on the emission side as well. That's really interesting. And um, yeah, to think about those construction materials, you know, you're offsetting presumably steel and concrete, right? Exactly. Which are very harmful in terms of emissions. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just talking about greenhouse gas emissions, right? There's all sorts of other yeah. you know, emissions associated <laughs> with wildfires. That's true. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah. Major damage to, to, to people's lungs and, and their health. Yeah. So, uh, Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we are scratching the surface on this topic, as we often do with our podcast episodes, but I think it's been a really great uh, kind of summary of what's happening in the forest economy and, and how this recent legislation is affecting it. So now I'd love to ask you the last question we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack that you think our listeners uh, might really enjoy. Uh, so what would you like to recommend? Sure. Uh I am a huge fan, and I've just reread. It's a 20-book series by an author named Patrick O'Brien, who, one way to describe this series of 20 books is uh, it's about the British Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. And um, there was a Russell Crowe film 
called Master and Commander that was based on one of the books. You know, it's like swashbuckling. It's historical fiction. But uh, that's probably going to turn off a lot of our listeners. It turned me off until I actually started reading these things. Um, It's kind of, it's got Jane Austen, you know, the social relationships, the psychology, the romance. Um, But one of the main characters is a spy, a doctor, and an amateur naturalist. And one of the things you get in this book is this incredible knowledge of botany and biology, kind of the golden age of natural history as they explore the seven seas. And I just learned a ton environmentally. It's both poetic about the environment and actually really scientifically substantive about the environment. So kind of a strange answer to your question, but I I do commend you all to uh, this series of books. It's amazing writing and it's amazingly environmental writing. That's great. Does the series have a name or is there like one book that is iconic that people can just search for really quickly? Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes to yeah. the, the broader series, but can you just tell us what it is? Um, I do think the first book is called Master and Commander, but the series is often referred to, I think, as the Aubrey Maturin series. These are the two main characters. Um, again, it's 20 books. It's a serial. It all flows one into the next. And uh, if you end up liking the first book, good news. There are 19 more. <laughs> <laughs> and if you end up not liking the first yeah, book, yeah. then good news. You don't have to read the rest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, great, Jim. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us understand uh, the forest economy and, and how it's changing in the U.S. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.